help me to be faithful to the text and faithful to your heart and your your uh, your spirit, Lord. And I pray the folks who are here would hear from you, like that they would know you more by hearing your word and know you more by hearing um, hearing it uh, taught. And and I pray, Lord, that um, that a great harvest would come out of just the preaching of the word in this place. Um, in Jesus' name, Amen. So we are in Judges, uh, and we're kind of moving forward. And I wanted to kind of give a little bit of an explanation before we dive into this section. I I, uh, I, I feel like a tourist sometimes while I'm in Montana. Um, I, I, uh, I, I go around and I see the sights and I do the things that, you know, that people here do every day. And I, for me, it's a little bit of excitement and, and, uh, or a lot of excitement. And, and in this case, I, I got, um, blessed this week by the opportunity to, uh, to drive a swather. Um, and actually it's funny as I was like learning to use it, I was reflecting on visiting uh Dwayne beer wagon and he was telling me about cutting wheat and then or with a swather and then cleaning it up with the combine and i i kept a, a what a swather what's a swather and i i he couldn't explain it to me until i watched larry driving a swather i wasn't sure exactly what was going on with with the way that Dwayne harvests which is still kind of weird um um it has something to do with soft lies i think is that right all right um so i'm driving the swather around and i uh I, I think um, apparently everybody who's ever driven a combine or any piece of machinery knows that the, the, new, the newbie's big failure is not being able to drive in a straight line. Um, and I, I, over the course of two days, I sort of got driving in a straight line down, right? Like I, I, I got better and better at driving in a straight line. But my straight lines, because I worked all the way across the field, the field's about a mile long and what, like a quarter mile wide? Um, and, and back and forth, one mile up, one mile back, over and over again. And by the middle to late second day, I was driving nice straight lines, but I had this weird thing in the middle of the field, <laughs> this big curve. And I, every time I go by it, I think, how did I do that? What happened here? And I finally I stopped, and I'm looking at my rows. And what happened was, at one point in time, I had a little bump. And then the next time I went by it, what did I do? Followed the bump. And then the next time I went by it, I followed the bump. And every time, the bump got a little bigger. And before you knew it, I hit a point where, where I was driving halfway across the field and halfway back. And, and eventually, I just cut straight across it and took two laps to cut it down to. I'm not kidding. It was embarrassing. Um, and I was the only one there. But now I've told you all. Um, <laughs> And, and, and it, it is, it's just this one imperfection, right, that gets a little bigger, that gets a little bigger, that gets a little bigger, that gets a little bigger. And it's, it's not that my driving was getting worse, although it wasn't until the second day that I discovered you can tip a swath or forward by hitting the brakes real hard. It doesn't even have brakes, so that says something. Um, <laughs> but, but my, see, my driving was getting better. But the problem, which was a pre-existing problem, because I didn't stop and correct it immediately, working around my pre-existing problem, it turned into something huge. And so as we kind of work into judges, next week we're going to start on the first judge. Um, and so we're a month in, a month and a week in, and we've covered the introduction to the book. So we're going to spend the next five years preaching this. Buckle up. Um, but, but um, so we're, we're in the last section of the introduction, and what, um, what's going on? 
Um, the major theme of this book is the downward spiral of the people of Israel. Got it? They start out awesome, and they progressively get worse. And in the first few weeks, we looked at the conquest, the final conquest of the land. And it starts out with Judah, who does great, and then the next Joseph, who does not so great. And then progressively, they just get worse and worse and worse. And where we end is, most of the nation isn't conquered. They just sort of said, well, Canaanites seem pretty all right. We can turn some of them into slaves, so that's awesome. Let's leave them. Who cares what God said? Right? They were supposed to kick these guys out of the land. They didn't do it. They cohabitated. So let's let's all just get along. It'll be great. Um, But they were directed not to. And they're told at the end, you guys blew it. Right? And now that you blew it, I'm not going to help you fix your problem. You're going to live with it. Right? And um, this section we're about to look at, um, before we get into the judges, this section is God's response. We get this one section that is the God's eye view on the whole story. And it's easy. When we think of judges, we think of like like Gideon, right? The story of Gideon, this warrior who has a third of an army and a fleece that he gets wet and a bunch of other weird stuff that happens with him. Or Samson, who's really strong and kind of an Arnold Schwarzenegger action hero type. We think of all of these guys in these stories. But like if we miss the God's eye view of this entire book, we miss the point. Everybody with me? Nobody asleep yet. Um, So uh, we're going to actually jump over my last introductory thing, and we're going to get into the text here. Um, When Joshua dismissed the people, now we're going to hit pause here. Um, Anybody who was here the first week knows that the book begins with, and Joshua died. (laughs) And now three chapters in Joshua, or two and a half chapters in, Joshua shows up again. Um, The reason for this is, is that what the author is doing here is he's giving us a summary And he's giving us a summary because we've heard the human perspective, the basic story, and now we're going to get God's perspective. Okay, and so like the author's about to give us God's perspective, and so he backs up and he says, hey, Joshua dismissed the people and dies is basically the implied thing. So Joshua dies and the people go, uh, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work of the Lord, the great work the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him uh, within the boundaries of his inheritance, Timnath Harris. My Hebrew is awful. Um, it's the literal translation. My Hebrew is awful. Um, in the country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaish. So um, we have this introduction here to like, like this section where God is about to explain. And we find out Joshua did his thing. The people started the conquest, and they did great because these were folks who had seen God act, right? These are people who knew God, like, personally. And they saw God feed them in the desert. They saw God, like, take down the walls of Jericho. They saw God. So they, like, had all of this, like, miraculous stuff they had seen. And they they are right there, and they're faithful and everything else because they were... Um, in the moment and saw it all happen, right? Um, you see God act in a mighty way, it has an impact on you, hopefully, right? Unless you're hard-hearted and dead inside and everything else. We see that with Jesus where he performs miracles and the Pharisees are so hard-hearted, they're like, yeah, it was a pretty impressive thing making that guy's hand grow back, but it's the Sabbath, <laughs> and so you're in trouble. 
You know, they're dead inside. Like, there was no growth there. But these guys were spiritually alive. They saw God acting. It created, like, a faithfulness and a passion in them because they knew what God was capable of. So then they all die. They all get old. They all die. It happens to all of us. Um, And we go into 10 to 12 here. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, meaning all of them died. And they arose. There arose after, excuse me, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Now, the word know there is yada. I was told, Anne, when I figured this out, yada, we know this word, right? It's a Yiddish word. Yep, it means I know, I know, I know, right? And so these are folks who, yada, they know God. But then the next generation comes along, and this generation does not. Yada, they do not know. Now, this word, yada, is not like encyclopedic knowledge, right? I have read all kinds of books, but I do not know these things, right? Um, Mark, I'm, Mark is a big fan of, of um, certain sections of English history, and there's a battle that happened in South Africa. Um, the Battle of, uh, <laughs> see, you knew right what I was talking about. And then after that was the Battle of? Rourke's Drift, and these two battles, and Mark has the uniform, he has the rifle, he, he wears them around the house to make coffee in the morning, Sam told me, um, I made that up, um, but he does, doesn't he? <laughs> um, Mark knows all kinds of things about this battle, and he has a Martini Henry rifle with these bullets that are like three feet long, um, the thing is a cannon, um, and he, he knows what it feels like to fire this rifle with its $12 a piece bullets. Um, and <laughs> they're about that. That's right. Um, but Mark was not actually in South Africa, right? Mark didn't experience the Battle of Is- What is it? Islandawana, um, which means clenched fist, by the way. Um, it's true. Um, so Mark knows about, but like there were guys who were there who survived, not very many of them. But there were guys who survived that battle who knew the battle in a very different way because they experienced it, right? When yada is used in the text, it usually means knowledge through experience or through, like, going through something. Um, You see it a lot of times as sort of a euphemism in Scripture, right? And Adam knew Eve, right? They met. That's what that means, right? Um. Because it, it means, like, intimate knowledge through experience, right? And so when it says these people knew, did not know God, but the previous generation knew God, what it means is that they had never experienced God as he is. They knew of him. They were aware of his presence. They probably had a great deal of book knowledge because they were raised by a generation that knew God. And these folks, but they didn't, they didn't know him because they didn't know him. They weren't close with him. They weren't walking with him. They had never seen God act. They didn't bother pursuing him because they weren't that excited about it. They had a very different type of knowledge. I guess the other way I would compare this, and as I was swathing, this was the analogy that came to mind. There's a very popular game. Um, is it Call of Duty? You know, they had all these World War II versions in the beginning, right? Um, I saw a comic where, where these guy, this kid's playing Call of Duty, and the, his grandfather's sitting next to him, and the grandfather says, Oh, I... I was on the beaches at Normandy. He's like, well, which Call of Duty was that in? You know, one guy knows it, the other guy knows it. Does that make sense? 
So these are people who don't know God. They've played the video game. They've read the, the book. They might even own the uniform that they use to make coffee in the morning. Um, but they don't know it. Um, is they do not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel, meaning they hadn't experienced it. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Baal. I can almost pronounce that right. Um, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they were after other gods and amongst the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. Now watch this. The, they served the Baals, which would be, um, Baal means Lord, right? And so they served the lords, like the divine lords of the, the Canaanite gods. They served all of them. They started following the gods of the people around them. And that's actually what it says at the end of the section. Look, the people that were around them, they started following their lords. And so what we're seeing happen is the line they were cutting developed a divot, right? Oh, we're going to let the Canaanites stay. And then the divot got bigger. How did it get bigger? Well, those Canaanites seem like nice folks. And, man, they got some pretty cool gods. We're going to get into that in just a second here. And they got some pretty cool gods. What if we start worshiping their gods? Their gods seem to really do some good stuff. Like our god, you know, he didn't even help us conquer the whole land, leaving out the fact that they didn't bother to do it. <laughs> um, but they, they, the divot gets bigger. And before long, it's going to turn into a huge variation, right? And they're going to be driving way out of their way just to do each row because the imperfection is going to get bigger. It starts off with them following after, walking after pagan gods, but it gets bigger. In fact, actually, they, they went after other gods. Um, that phrase is literally translated, they walked after other gods. And it was this pagan thing. You would have these places you would do your rituals, and you would pick up the statue of the god that you were worshiping, and you would follow the priest around as he walked and paraded, these giant parades, and walking after the god was a part of the worship service. right? And then they would go where they were going, and they would do their worshiping. And so like what he's saying is, hey, these guys start worshiping other gods. They... Um, they are cheating on God, and we're going to get to that in a minute. And they provoked the Lord to anger. Um, they abandoned the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. Um, now, Baal, we're going to kind of get into who Baal was. Um, Baal was the god of the storm, the god of rain. Now, this is an agrarian culture. Anybody want to guess why they worship the god of rain? No one? <laughs> if it doesn't rain, what do you not have? You don't have food. So they worship the God that made the money and gave them comfort, right? Baal is pretty cool that way. He feeds us. We like him. Um, and Asheroth had two primary things. She was the goddess of war, and she was the goddess of love, right? And actually, Asheroth, you would see, you'll see much more later in Kings, the phrase Asheroth pole, which is like a uh, statue in the shape of a pole to worship the fertility goddess. Fill in the blanks. I'm not making that up. It's pretty wrong. Um, and actually, there's a later... Anyway, we won't get into that. Um, <laughs> too deep into that conversation is going to get me in trouble. Um, and so, like, they begin to serve the God of sex and the God of, you know, money and comfort, right? Why do you pick these two out? Well, because they seem like a lot of fun. We know that God, like, supposedly helped out our parents, but look what these guys get to do. Look at how they worship. Shouldn't we be doing that? 
And so they begin to abandon God because they don't know him. They've never experienced that God. And they begin to pursue the gods of the the land they're in. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned. And so the Lord had sworn to them, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. So what happens is God gets angry. Now, um, we begin to see something very basic about who God is. God is passionate, right? God is not a God who kind of takes things lightly. Um, God is a God who, when he leaves Egypt, when he pulls the people out of Egypt, he says, hey, I'm going to go and fight on your behalf. And then, like, the plagues happen. And each of the plagues is, is lined up with one of the Egyptian gods, right? And it's basically God's way of saying, hey, smack, I'm real, smack. Your gods aren't, smack. You know, and he slaps them around a little bit. And he fights on behalf of his people. Even the Pharaoh was worshipped. And the story ends with the Pharaoh drowning in the Red Sea because God stands up and fights for his people because God is a warrior. Actually, it's in Psalms. You know, the Lord is a warrior, um, the Lord is his name. Like, God is like this this fighter, and he's also passionately in love with his people. Like, we read in in um, the prophets where God talks about the nation of Israel as his daughter or as his wife. You find me a man who is not passionate about his wife or his daughter? You know, they're rare, right? You know, you, you, you say the wrong thing to my daughter, and there's going to be a problem. Um, you say the wrong thing to my wife, there's going to be a problem. You mistreat my wife. You, you know, like these things are, and God is a passionate God. He is so passionate, in fact, that he sends his son to die for us. He loves us so much that he sends his son to bear our sins to redeem us to himself. Like that is, that's not a half-hearted thing, right? That's not a small gesture. God is like, he, he loves big. He becomes angry big. He fights big. He creates beautiful and big. Like God is something else. Um, and so this God becomes angry, and his anger, his response is, you guys want their gods? Let's see them defend you, right? You guys want to live amongst the Canaanites? Let's see how much you like it when they start acting like the Canaanites. And so they begin to plunder the people, and oh man, this is awful. And they start crying out to God, and God says, you know what? You can go out and fight, but I'm not on your side. Let's see if Baal is going to fight on your behalf. Let's see if Asheroth is going to fight on your behalf. Let's see how that goes. And so God, like, his hand is against him. He fights against them. And he does this because, in the end, they reach a point of terrible distress. Um, And the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after uh, other gods, and they bowed down to them. Strong phrasing, isn't it? I actually read that twice the first time I read it. I was like, did it really just say hoard after other gods? Because the perspective of God is not, oh, look, you're sinning. And in fact, actually, when it says they do evil in the sight of God, um, it's not listing off they oppress their neighbor. It's not listing off they spit in the road when they weren't supposed to. It's not listing off, like, little sins. It's listing off the fact that they were unfaithful and they didn't really love God. 
they pursued other gods. And now they're unfaithful to him. They, they sell themselves off to other gods. Like they, they become like the property of these other gods. Like, like God is offended as a husband would be offended if his wife cheated on him. Like this is the kind of anger that God has. He rescues them and they continue to do it. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commands of the Lord. So they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those, because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So God is moved to pity even though they are like offending him. Even though he is like in opposition to them, he still loves them and pities them because God is passionate, right? And he rescues them, and they don't turn. They continue to rebel, and he rescues them again, and they continue to rebel. And he rescues them again, and they continue to rebel, and they never turn their hearts. Um, and actually, like as dumb as they seem, because they seem dumb, right? Like this is exactly where all of us were when Jesus died for us. We all rebelled. We were all God's enemies. That's actually Romans says that when we were still God's enemies. And we were far off from him. He sent his son to die for us. And this is actually how we know what love is, right? When we were helpless, God sent his son to die for us. Again, so God's passionate love for his people is played out that even though they continue to be unfaithful, he continues to rescue them. And he rescues them by military might, right? And eventually we have a guy, um, brother, it says there's sort of a puzzling phrase here that they... Uh, these judges preached to them, and they didn't listen. They turned aside. Um, there are only a couple of judges that pointed people back toward God. Uh, Samuel was one of them. Samuel was generally considered to be a prophet, but most theologians consider him to be the very, very, very last of the judges. Um, but they wouldn't listen to these guys, even the ones who preached. And eventually the judges got so crummy that they just got in the way and they made things worse. But that's beside the point. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So they continued to be in rebellion, and they got worse. So like the grandkids and the great-grandkids of this generation, the greatest generation, the great-grandkids are the ones who are like, screwing up and they're screwing up times 10 of their grandparents so they're great i mean they're just doing an awful job um and what's going on here is it's that imperfection right you drive down the field in the swath or you hit the point where you had to turn and you turn and you it gets bigger and it gets bigger and it gets bigger what was the imperfection the imperfection started with don't obey god don't follow his commandments. Let the Canaanites stay. And then it was worship the Canaanite gods. Eventually it was, hey, let's sacrifice our children to the Canaanite gods. That seems like a good idea. And God's not okay with that. Hey, let's do all kinds of dirty things for the Asherah festivals. Like, that's okay. And God just becomes angrier and angry. He rescues them over and over again. And they continue to rebel. And he hands them over to their sin. And it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Because in the end, their hearts were not right. And actually, we would all be in the same boat if Jesus, like when Jesus dies for us, we're given a new heart. We become new creations, and we grow in the direction of holiness, right? We learn to drive straight, um, and we cut out those chunks of our lives that aren't supposed to be there, and we become different. But it's only when God changes the heart that that happens. Um, sometimes we say, well, why doesn't God send someone to save us? You know, why can't we have a great presidential candidate who's going to, like, rescue us from our sins, because Jesus already did that, right? 
If people's hearts are messed up, you can do anything for them politically, financially, anything else. Until their hearts are right, you can't save them. Ever. And it's actually judges. It's the message of judges. Um, broken hearts produce broken people. Um, because they have transgressed... Oh, hold on. Uh, they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people has transgressed my covenant and I commanded their, fa- that they com- I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care of take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. Now, God knows that they're not going to do right, okay? Like, this is God speaking, and he already knows they're not going to do the right thing. He already knows. So when it says he's testing them, it's a little like taking a test that you already know all the answers to, right? Like, if you read the book of Job, there's this great spot where Satan comes, and God is like, hey, consider my servant Job. Look at how awesome he is. And Satan's like, well, I'll take stuff away from him. He'll hate you. Guess what? didn't happen. God knew how it was going to turn out. And it's the same way here. God isn't tempting the people. He's demonstrating their unfaithfulness by, by leaving things in their path. And when they stumble over those things, you know, it, it's demonstrated. They're, they're not faithful. They've rejected him. And actually, it all culminates in 1 Samuel when they pick a king. And Samuel's upset, and God says, hey, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Um, the story of Judges and God's response here is, they're going to reject me. They reject God. God saves them. They reject God. God saves them. They reject God. Over and over and over and over again. And that is where we end up. Like the whole book from here on out is the demonstration of the people's failure to obey and follow God. Because um, they don't know him. They might know things about him. But eventually they forget the things they knew. Um, So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hands of Joshua. All right, so now we're on the other end of this, like, um, what do we do with this? This section here, this, you know, look, the people rebelled. It made God angry. Um, The underlying thing here is going to be God is passionate, right? Um, And God is passionate. A passionate person expects, like, a passionate response. Um, Husbands... Real quick, how many of y'all want your wives to love you passionately? How many of y'all wives, how many of you want your husbands to be passionately in love with you? It's true, isn't it? Like, God expects and calls out his people to that. He sent Jesus to die for us, not so we could be lukewarm, right? But so that we could be passionately in love with him. He's a God who doesn't do things in half measures. He does things right, and he does things with whole heart. And he looks for people who are wholehearted, people who desire to know him, who pursue him, pour themselves out for him. Like, he's a God who is serious about these things. Um, And here's the thing. It's not just about sin. Um, Like, we sometimes want to distill God into these things, and we say, as long as I don't watch these TV shows, as long as I'm not doing this, as long as I'm not doing that, as long as I'm fulfilling these basic expectations and checking all my boxes, I'm fine. But in reality, God desires us to not sin because we love him, right? I am passionately in love with my wife. That's why I don't date other women, right? I don't just not date other women because I'm afraid of being murdered. 
I do it because I love my wife. I don't, you know, it's out of this passionate response. And that's what God calls us to over and over again. The failure of the people isn't that they just pursued other gods. It's because they didn't know God. And they didn't want to know him all that badly because everything else looked good. Now, we live in a culture that puts things in front of us that look good, right? Comfort, financial security, entertainment, sex, dirty pictures on the Internet, um, you name it, really. There are all sorts of things to worship that aren't God. Um, there are all sorts of things that, like, like the world puts around us that we say, hey, you know what, I can incorporate this. And I've watched, actually, it's funny, because I've watched guys who are spiritually mature, who've grown over the years that they've been following Jesus, but they have an imperfection. And it gets bigger, right? And that imperfection gets bigger. And the longer we leave it, the worse it gets, right? And it's funny, because I'll talk to guys and I'll say, well, I don't know how I got here. I remember where I started, and here I am. And what happens is, the more God allows us to worship things that aren't him, or allows us to live in sin in an area of our lives, the bigger it gets. I mean, all of us have these things. And our calling is, honestly, it's the same thing I did with the, with the row, right? How do you fix a row that's not straight? You cut off the section that isn't straight, and you mow it all down. Um, in our own hearts and our own lives, in the nation of Israel, what they should have done is they should have repented, they should have turned from this stuff, but the text says very directly that they didn't. They didn't want to. They loved this stuff, and they didn't love God. Passionate love for God, this, this wholehearted pursuit of him, it begins by making him, number one, and mowing over everything that isn't. Does that mean that, you know, I can't watch TV anymore? No. It means that TV can't be God. It means that entertainment can't be God. It means that money can't be God. It means that your family can't be God. And I love my family, mind you. I'm not saying don't love your family. I'm saying your family can't be God. Um, nothing, nothing, nothing that isn't God should be God. Um, because God is jealous. And regardless of what some folks think, jealousy is sometimes a natural and good response. It's a response of, I am passionately in love with you and I will be jealous. Um, my challenge for you today is to look at your heart and look at your life and ask yourself, am I passionately in love with God? Am I pursuing him? Is this like central to who I am as a person? Is this central to who I am as a man or a woman, as a mother, as a father, as a child? Like, Am I passionately putting God first or are these things down the line? Um, you want to know, actually, there are two easiest ways to tell what the truth is. First off is, what do you do when you're stressed out? Right? If the first thing you do when you're stressed out is drink a six-pack of beer, <laughs> that may not be the ideal. I don't, I'm not, you know, Bible doesn't forbid drinking, but drinking can't become God. When we're stressed, we turn to God in prayer and say, God, rescue me. Um, that's the ideal. Do I flee to entertainment? Do I flee to hiding out in my, in my man cave? Do I, I mean, what do I do? Like, am I turning to God and finding comfort in him? When the crops aren't growing, the rain ain't coming, when the kids won't behave. And I tell you, that's a big one, isn't it? Um, am I talking to God first? The barometer of the spiritual life and spiritual health is your prayer life. Are you turning to him first? Or is he tenth? Is he after the other gods? You know, is, is Ashereth right there? You know, man, get out of my stressful situation any way necessary, but... Except him. 
The second way is money. Honestly, I hate talking about money, but like where your treasure is, so will your heart be. Is that right? Or I get that backward? Um, I, I've watched folks who, who um, well, heck, uh, there was a TV preacher here recently who said he needed $150 million to buy a jet. Not just any jet, but the Rolls-Royce of jets. God told me I should have it. This is a man who, as if he's a real minister, his job is to care for the flock. Is buying a Rolls-Royce jet like caring for your flock? No, but where his treasure is is what he's taking care of. What's he taking care of? Number one, right? Um, and so our calling, like you want to figure out where you're at, look at where you go when you're having a bad day and look at where you go with your money. Um, and you'll know exactly who's God. Um, I'm not saying, hey, give me a whole bunch of money so I can buy a hot tub. I, not what I'm saying. I'm saying is measure your heart by where it is. We're going to um, celebrate the Lord's Supper because of the first week of the month, and I am right on time to be on time. I'm going to call my guys forward who are going to be serving. Um, as we prepare our hearts for communion, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper, like like.